0: You know, as they're receiving the offering, let me just say that uh, this teaching that I've been doing about taking the limits off of God, I believe has been powerful. It's really built me up, and it's ministered to a lot of people. I think that this has been timely for most people, but I've kind of laid the groundwork. I think that everybody who's been coming to these meetings now is pretty much on the same page. They are really blessed and inspired by this, but now it's hard for me because... There are lots of things that limit God, and I've only got two sessions left, and I have no idea how I'm going to cram all of this stuff in here. I can't just mention it and not explain it, and so uh, anyway, I'm just barely scratching the surface. I really would encourage you to get the CDs and the DVDs from these meetings and listen to them again. This is the kind of stuff, this, this teaching this weekend, I believe, is the kind of thing that you need to listen to more than once. You need a dose of this every once in a while just to get you motivated. Plus, it's a great way to share this truth with somebody else. And uh, it's easier to just hand them the CD or the DVD sometimes than it is to try and explain all of that. So I encourage you to get that. And also, all of this other material out here, uh, I could name probably today, this morning, I could probably name five or six series that I've got that will amplify on what I'm going to be talking about this morning. So anyway, that's what all that material is for. All we've done is lay a foundation, and I encourage you that you need to really seek the Lord because there's a lot of things we do that limit God. So I've been talking about taking the limits off of God. We shared from Psalm 78:41 about how the children of Israel limited God. I've tried to make it clear that one of the biggest mistakes, I think, in the body of Christ is this extreme teaching on the sovereignty of God to where God just supernaturally controls things. Que Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That's not true. That you have to cooperate with God. If you don't take your authority and obey and follow what God has told you to do, you can stop God's perfect will from coming to pass in your life. And so if you don't understand that, if you have this... Uh, attitude that God just by fate controls things and things work out, well, then you're going to limit God. You have to stir yourself up and pursue the things of God to get it. Then we talked about that every person has a destiny, that you've got to find out what that destiny is. You can't fulfill God's will accidentally, that before you were even formed in the womb, you were uh, ordained and equipped to do specific things. And you might be able to prosper and do some other things, but you'll never prosper to the degree that God wants you to. You'll never reach your full potential unless you find out what God has for you. Then we talked about how that fear limits God. And I talked about different kinds of fear. Fear of people, fear of man, fear of failure, fear of success. All of those kind of things limit God. And I've had a lot of people talk about that, man, that has really uh, rang their bell. That that was a word for them. What I want to talk about this morning, and again, this is, this is a huge subject, that there's no way I can adequately deal with this. And this, some ways, overlaps with what I was talking about, how fear limits God. But unbelief limits God. And uh, fear is unbelief, or unbelief is fear. Those things are certainly related. But the scriptures, there are just so many scriptures. I don't know where to start on this. But, you know, if you believe, you shall receive. If you speak to this mountain and doubt not in your heart, it will obey. If you doubt God, then you are going to limit what God can do in your life. And a lot of people don't recognize this. But brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that is full of doubt. To some of you, you understand exactly what I'm saying. To some of you, you're just shocked. Like, oh no, this, you know, this is a great, great place. Well, I believe America's a wonderful place. I'm not critical of it, but I'm saying that you know what? We are riddled with unbelief. We are baptized in unbelief. And most churches are full of unbelief. And I'm not against the church. I'm for the church. Amen. But I'm saying that there is a tremendous amount of fear, doubt, and unbelief. If Jesus was to come into our current religious setting today, I guarantee you, He would turn everything upside down. He wouldn't last three and a half years in our religious culture. We'd kill Him sooner. We are, we are riddled with unbelief. You know, let me just use Matthew chapter 17. Let's, I'm going to use these scriptures and try not to stay here because I've actually got teaching where I minister on these verses ...for four and five times on just these few verses. And I want to say a lot of things this morning. But look at Jesus. He came down from the mountain and and they had brought a demon-possessed boy to him. And they uh, sought to get this demon cast out of this boy. Jesus and three of his disciples had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration... And they weren't there, and so the, the father of this boy asked the disciples to cast this demon out, and they couldn't do it. And so when Jesus showed up, the father came running up to Jesus, and here's what he said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And when they were come to, see the, come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic. And sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. Most people believe this is some kind of a thing like seizures, epilepsy, something like that. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Now how did Jesus respond to this? Let me just basically say this. You know, today, if most people went to a church and said, my son has seizures, seizures. And he falls and he's hurt himself and he falls into the fire and he foams at the mouth. How would the average pastor respond to that? To the, the average pastor would say, well, what does the doctor said? Is he on Medicaid? What treatment? And that? You'd, well, you'd need to go see a specialist. Let me pray that God will bless the doctors and ask God to use the doctors and give them wisdom. Yes. That's the way that most pastors would respond today if you have a person with financial problems come to the average pastor the average pastor would say well have you been to the community care center have you applied for welfare have you checked out the agencies to see if they're going to help you if somebody comes with emotional problems have you been to a psychiatrist have you tried this drug have you tried this you know you can stabilize your emotions by doing this and this and this the church hasn't accepted responsibility for meeting the needs of people. And so, today, the average person would would say, you know, that we're supposed to be compassionate, we're supposed to show sympathy, we're supposed to say, well, God bless you, I'm going to pray for you, go see the doctor, and as you go, I'll, I'll be praying and interceding for you. How did Jesus respond? He said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Jesus was not politically correct. You know what the, What most people would preach today is that Jesus should have said, Guys, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have left you by yourself. This is too much for you. This is something. I should have been here. It's my fault. Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad about yourself. Don't, feel, don't let any guilt or condemnation come. That's the way that people would approach it today. Jesus said, you faithless and perverse generation. What's wrong with you? I'm not going to be here forever. I'm trying to get you guys to where you can do this. Brothers and sisters, the church is supposed to be the first line of defense against poverty, against sickness, against depression, against all of these things. And the church is not fulfilling its requirement. And if Jesus was to show up today, I believe I'm speaking accurately that the Lord would say we're faithless And perverse generation, we live in a culture of unbelief. And even the faith churches, even the spirit-filled churches to a very large degree aren't meeting the needs. Of course, the vast majority of the body of Christ doesn't even believe that God does those things today. But among those who believe that it can happen, they have no handle on whether it will happen or not. And I tell you, this is not the way that God meant it to be. And I don't know any way to express these things without causing some unrest in people. Some people say, so you're saying that we aren't being everything that God wants us to be? You're saying there's something wrong? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and you know what? Before you can fix the problem, we're going to have to admit that this is not the way that the Lord meant for it to be. We live in a culture of unbelief outside of the body of Christ. It is terrible unbelief, demonic Oppression, there is a spirit of Antichrist working. If you don't realize it, we are living in a hostile environment. Christians are about the only group that it is politically correct to discriminate against. We live in a culture of unbelief. And then, even among Christians, there is a tremendous amount of unbelief. So I'm saying, I could spend hours or days making these points, but whether you realize it or not... We have been baptized in unbelief. I've had, a, I've had bunches of people come this week and say that these meetings are amazing. The, the atmosphere. People here are walking in love and people are talking about healing and they're believing God. And there's people that are just talking about that, man, it's, it's an amazing atmosphere. When they come to our Bible college, I guarantee you it's hard for you to walk into our Bible college and not get blessed there are students that actually come and they're sick and I guarantee you they don't have to say anything. We've got so many people loving God and seeking God, they'll pick up on it. And somebody will minister to you. If you have a financial need, if you're discouraged, it's hard to leave that building without somebody picking up on it and meeting the needs. It's just an amazing atmosphere because we are saturating it with the Word of God and we're trying to act on what the Word says. And we see a similar thing happen here. This is not abnormal. This should be normal Christianity. And again, we are way below what God intended for us to be. But most people in churches, they go in and there's fear there, there's strife, there's division. They're arguing over the color of the carpet or, or whatever. Brothers and sisters, unbelief is rampant in the body of Christ. And Jesus wasn't pleased with his disciples' inability to meet the needs. And the Lord's not pleased with the church where we stand today and our inability to represent Him properly. Amen. Amen. And I'm including myself in that. I'm, I'm not doing everything the way that I should, but praise God, I hadn't arrived, but I've left. I'm still moving in that direction, and it's a goal of mine to see 100% of the people set free. Did you realize that in the United States, it was the church that started prisons because a couple of hundred years ago, they didn't have prisons and they would publicly flog people, put them in the stocks and do things like this. And if they stole a piece of bread three times, they'd just kill them. They'd lynch them. That's the way it was done. Because they didn't have prisons and stuff. So the Presbyterians actually started prisons To take people who were doing things wrong but were under duress and under they they were possible to rehabilitate. And they started locking them up and ministering the word to them and teaching them the word of God and helping them get back on their feet. And it became so productive that then the government saw that, hey, these people could be rehabilitated. So the government took it over and turned it into something that's now, if you aren't a crook when you go into prison, you will be by the time you get out. Because you know what, the church should have kept this responsibility, but instead we advocated and turned it over to the, to the government. The church is the one that used to give welfare. They didn't call it that, but they used to show benevolence and help people, and it was the church that was helping people. And now we've given that over to the government so that we expect the government to support people. If the church was taking care of people, you wouldn't see the abuse. If the church was administering it in a godly fashion, if you don't work, don't eat. We would be helping people get back on their feet. We would be tying it to them, trying to do some things. And the church could administer this a lot better than the government could. Did you know that the church is the one that started schools? The church is the one that taught people to read and write. And yes, there was applications in the business world and the natural world, but primarily it was to read the Word of God. They used the Word of God as their readers. The church used... The reading and writing to educate people so that they could understand the Word of God. And then we've turned it over to the government. People say today, you know, should there be Christian schools or public schools? Public schools really aren't a godly concept. That responsibility was given to the believers to train up their children and to teach them in the ways of God and do these kind of things. We should never have turned that responsibility over. And you know the reason that some of the things in our nation are going the way that they're going is because the government has basically ruled God out of education. They've become humanistic. The uh, humanist manifesto, I forget the exact timing of that thing, but it was a manifesto that they were, they were going to eliminate God and their, their own statements were that they were going to infiltrate the education system And turn people's opinion. And now we've got a generation that have done that. We're seeing this in our elections and stuff. That people are promoting things that aren't necessarily Christian. They're ungodly. But it's because we've got a group of people that have been raised without the foundation of a godly deal. Because Christians advocated that responsibility. We've turned the responsibility for health over to doctors. We've turned the responsibility for emotional well-being over to pills. I am astounded at how many Christians live on pills and take pills for anything and everything. I've had as many as ten people in a healing line out before the service say to me in a row what their problem is. And it's all from medication and the side effects and stuff. And I mean blindness, deafness, people being in wheelchairs, malpractice. Man, we have taken our faith away from God and put it in anything but God. I could go on and on for weeks, but I'm just trying to say that, you know what? God, we live in a culture of unbelief. And many of us don't even recognize it. Unbelief limits what God can do. And so this, if you were to read, I'm getting more into this than I wanted to do. So let me just refer to this. Over in the ninth chapter of the book of Mark, this same instance is given. And in Mark's account of the same thing, when the boy was brought to Jesus, he fell on the ground and wallowed and foamed at the mouth. And Jesus asked him, how long has this been since he's had it? And he said, since a child. Sometimes he falls into the water and sometimes into the fire. But if you can do anything, all things are, I mean, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus responded by saying, shot right back at him, says, It's not if I can do anything, if you can believe, all things are possible. Jesus wasn't about to put all of this responsibility on himself. That father needed to believe. He needed somebody to be standing in faith. And that father said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the Lord went ahead and cured this um Boy, and cast the demons out. The disciples came to Jesus and they said down here in Matthew chapter 20, I mean chapter 17 in verse 19, it says, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, It's because of your unbelief. Boy, that's a major statement. Again, I hesitate to even bring this stuff up because... This is one of the greatest principles God's ever told me, and it's not what I'm wanting to talk about this morning. I'm trying not to preach on it. It's not the fact that they didn't have faith. It's the fact that they had unbelief. Now, if you have the NIV, I'm not against any translation... But if you have the NIV, it says it's because of your little faith. That's not what it's talking about. Because the rest of the verse goes on to say, For I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this uh, mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it shall obey you. The whole point that he's making is you don't need this huge faith. If your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, that's enough to cast a mountain into the sea. You don't need big faith. You don't need this huge faith. You just need a simple pure faith that isn't diluted or contaminated with unbelief, a pure faith that doesn't have unbelief. So the, the problem isn't our lack of faith. You know, if you're here, this is a Saturday morning. I'm not in somebody's church. This isn't the nod to God crowd. You aren't getting, you know, brownie points for this. You're here because you're a fanatic or you were drugged here by a fanatic. You believe in the healing power of God. You believe in the miraculous... You've got faith. You've got enough faith to see the dead raised, to see the blind eyes open, to see healing. You don't have a faith problem. What you've got is an unbelief problem. And some people think, well, if I've got unbelief, that means automatically I don't believe. That's not so. You can believe and disbelieve at the same time. And you've got to get rid of of the unbelief. Most people are trying to build faith. And what they do, if they have a need, they call hundreds of people and get them to pool their faith together. You know why you have to do that? Because a little unbelief will leaven the whole lump. A little bit of unbelief goes a long ways. And so if you're going to live in a culture of unbelief, well then it's going to take a lot of people praying and agreeing to help overcome this thing. The other way is just to get rid of the unbelief and get so focused on the things of God that just a little mustard seed amount of faith is enough and you don't have to call up a prayer chain and have thousands of people agree to receive. Some people think, well, I don't spend a lot of time in unbelief. Man, you watch television, they'll come on and they'll, they'll tell you it's flu season. Have you gotten your flu shot yet? They've been talking about all of this economic problem, saying it's the worst collapse since the Depression. That's not true. I gave stats the other night about the 80s. Unemployment was up to 10.8%. Foreclosures were much higher than they are now. It's just a lie. You're listening to unbelief. You are being fed fear and doubt and unbelief. Does anybody remember Y2K? Oh, the body of Christ was convinced that was the end of the world. This was the beginning of the tribulation. That's unbelief. It was lies. It was deception. Does anybody remember the bird flu? <laughs> Avian flu? And I have a quote from a guy in, uh, on the BBC, and he was one of the leading experts for the British healthcare system. And they said, Is this going to uh, mutate into a strain that will infect uh, humans? Will there be a pandemic? And he said, There is no question of whether or not it'll happen. It's just a matter of when. It could be one year or two years at the most, but one third of the world's population will die through the bird flu. That was given October of 2005. That was over October of 2007. And I read a report in the world, uh, in the USA Today in October of 2007, that at that time there was 12 human deaths worldwide. Quite a difference from a pandemic. That's a lie. That's unbelief. And we are constantly being fed this stuff. They are magnifying. They tell you only the bad news. Did you know that there are there were less deaths in Iraq military Last year than there were in some months prior to that. And you don't even hear about all of that stuff. They don't tell you if there's an improvement and if things are going good. But if things were bad, if there was a major deal, if something looked bad to make a miracle look bad, I guarantee you our news media would report it. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture of unbelief. We're being fed unbelief constantly. And that negativism, that fear, that constant drumbeat of doubt and unbelief and critical and stuff is affecting you. I don't know how to say it any clearer than that. And it's limiting what God can do. Just take in the economic realm. They're saying all of these negative things. They've got Christians that are afraid to do things. I mentioned the other night that David, some of the people he knows that work for these other ministries in Colorado Springs, they've canceled their expansion plans. They're laying off people. They're scaling back. They're operating in fear. And I guarantee you the body of Christ should be taking advantage of this opportunity. People are unsettled and they need someone to come across their path and tell them the truth. This is a great opportunity to, to expand. Christians should be out taking advantage of this. The enemy is in fear. Man, attack. (laughs) attack while they're in fear. Do something. Take advantage of this. And it's unbelief that is limiting what God can do through people. There are some of you that probably have scaled back plans. Things that God told you to do and yet you've scaled back because you've listened to the unbelief of other people. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Unbelief comes the same way. It comes by hearing. Unbelief comes by hearing all of the junk, by being exposed to the negativism of this world. And brothers and sisters, if we don't unplug from that and start getting into the Word of God and renewing our mind and getting to where we operate in faith, you are going to limit God. It's going to take faith to operate in what God calls you to do. It takes a lot of faith to start believing for big things. If what you're doing doesn't take faith, if you can do it in your own ability and you don't have to call out to God and depend upon God, I doubt seriously that you have found God's will for your life. God's going to call you to do something that's going to put you into a realm where you need to say, God, help, amen. This is more than what I can do. If you can pull it off in your own power, you had not found what God wants you to do. God's going to lead you to do something that takes faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. So you got to get rid of faith. I mean, get, excuse me. You got to get rid of unbelief, and you got to get into faith. Amen. So one of the ways there's, I've categorized unbelief into three categories. There is unbelief that comes through ignorance, or the politically correct way to say is people don't have a lack of knowledge. For those of you that are sensitive and that you get offended. For the rest of us, you're just ignorant. You don't know what the Word of God says. You know what? If you have ignorance in an area, you're going to naturally not believe because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So how do you overcome that kind of unbelief? You tell a person the truth. You teach them the Word of God. And if their heart is open, well, then they receive the truth and they're able to overcome that type of unbelief. Then there's another type of unbelief that is caused by wrong information, being taught the wrong thing, taught that God doesn't heal today, that God doesn't do miracles, that God is sovereign and you have no choice. That kind of teaching will also cause you to disbelieve or have unbelief, but that's because you were taught wrong. The antidote for that is the same as the first type of unbelief. You have to tell a person the truth, but it's actually harder to get a person over that kind of unbelief because it's like you're trying to ride on a blackboard that's already been filled up with stuff. You first of all got to erase it before you can write the stuff on. So when a person has been taught wrongly, well, then you have to go in and get rid. You have to counter that negative teaching before you can put in the right teaching. So it's actually harder, but it's the same deal. How do you get rid of the third type of unbelief? The third type of unbelief is what I call natural unbelief. You just... You you have eyes and ears and feeling and God says something and you you know what the Word says. You have faith. By his stripes you're healed but your body says you're hurt. It's not because you're ignorant of what the Word says and it's not because you've been taught the wrong thing but you just pray for something and here's what the Word says but here's what I feel. How do you overcome the unbelief that comes with that? Well, it's, it's uh, a little bit harder because you have to press into the things of God and just get to where you develop your sixth sense of faith to the point that it's more real to you than what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And some people can't do that. Or let me rephrase that. Some people haven't put the effort into it to do that. All of us have the capacity to walk by faith. I believe that's what Adam and Eve were created with. You know, it said, I'm not going to take the time to turn over there, but Genesis chapter 3 in verse 6, when they saw the tree, that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, then they took of the fruit and gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. And then in verse 7, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. What does it mean when it says their eyes were opened? Do you think that their eyes had been closed prior to that time? Do you think they'd been walking around with their eyes closed? That they had never seen that tree because their eyes had been closed the whole time? That's not what that's talking about. Their physical eyes had been opened, but you need to listen quick. I got a lot to say right here. They had a sixth sense, which was faith. You can see things with your heart. And they were created in the image of God. They were walking by faith. And I believe that they were so controlled by faith that what they saw with their eyes really didn't have much influence on them. They had seen that tree. The Bible says it was in the midst of the garden. And if you look that word up, it's a mathematical term that if you were to take two diagonals through the garden, it's at the intersection. And the significance of that is the tree was by just the laws of odds. They had to have passed that tree more than any other tree in the garden. It wasn't in some remote part of the garden. It was right in the very center. They had been by it. And yet it says in Genesis 3, 6 that when they saw the tree... I'm sure they had seen it, but they hadn't seen it because they were more in the faith realm. They were more in the spiritual realm than they were in the physical realm. Their eyes were open. I'm sure that's how they navigated and walked around and did things, but they weren't dominated by what they saw. For instance, when their eyes were open, what was the first thing that happened? They realized they were naked. Do you know what? They were just as naked before they sinned as they were after they sinned. And some people say, oh, no, they were clothed in the glory of God. They had a robe of righteousness. Well, if you read the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, I believe it's verse 23 or 25, says both the man and his wife were naked, and that's before they ate of the tree. They were but naked before <laughs> they ate of the tree and after they ate of the tree. They did not have some glory cloud, and yet they had never known they were naked. They had never noticed that the other person was naked. How do you reconcile that? It's because they were walking by faith so much that what they saw and what they felt wasn't dominant to them. I know that some of us think, you can't be that way. See, we are so fallen. We are so far removed from what God intended that we, we think this is normal. The way people live today is abnormal. We are a shell of what God intended mankind to be. He intended us to be walking by faith. I believe that when Adam and Eve communicated with God in the cool of the evening, there's no indication that they physically saw Him, that they audibly heard Him. Now they may have, but it would be just as real to believe that it was by faith that they were able to perceive Him, that they could perceive His presence in the cool of the evening contrast this with over in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm not going to take time to turn over there and read that, but in 2 Kings chapter 6 there was Elijah who was telling the king of Israel, the king of Syria's battle plans. And every time the king of Syria tried to attack the Israelis, Elijah or Elisha would tell the king of Israel the battle plans and the king of Israel would ambush the Syrians. And so this happens so often that finally the king of Syria says, there's a spy among us. Somebody's given away my battle plans. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but the Elisha, the man of God, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. And when the king of Syria heard this, he sent his armies down, surrounded the town of Dothan, where Elisha was, and his servant Gehazi went out in the morning and stood on the walls of the city. And as he looked out, he saw all of the Syrians out there, thousands and thousands of Syrians' troops surrounding the city. Come to get them. And he went in to Elisha and he said, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Which is old English for he panicked. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) What are we going to do? And Elisha, he says, fear not, those that be with us. Are more than those that be with them. You know what? Most people would say, "Well, that's what I thought about you, faith people. You're just, you're just lying. You're saying things that are lies. You think that if you'll say something is so, when it really isn't so, then it'll become so. That's the way some people think faith is." When Elisha said, those that be with us are more than those that be with them. If all you believe is real is the physical world, then he lied. But see, that's not true. There is a spiritual world. There are spiritual realities. And if you take the spiritual world into account, then Elisha didn't lie. Elisha was speaking the truth. There was more with them than there was with those enemies. People who are carnal, natural, only think with their five senses, don't use faith, will always think that faith people are lying because they they think that all there is to reality is just what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. So they check out their five senses. The Bible says I am healed, but the truth is I still hurt. So I'm just going to say that I'm healed when I'm really not healed. And if I'll say it long enough, maybe it'll become real. That's what some people think faith is. But no, faith is recognizing that there is more going on than what you can prove with your little peanut brain. (laughs) You know, right now there's radio signals, there's television signals in this room, and yet you don't hear them. You don't see them. But they're here. And if you say, no, it doesn't exist. If I can't see, taste, hear, smell, or feel it, that doesn't mean that they aren't here. It just means you aren't very smart. They are here. And all you'd have to do to prove that there are television signals in here is to take a television set, put it up here, plug it in, turn it on, tune it in. And when you start seeing and hearing the signal is not when the signal is given. The signal is already here. We just don't have a receiver that is taking it out of the unseen realm and putting it into the seen realm. But it's here. There are radio and television signals in this room. When you turn your set on, it's not when the station starts broadcasting. That's when you start receiving. And likewise, in the spiritual realm, God is doing all kinds of things. He is releasing His power. There are things happening in the spiritual realm that you cannot perceive with your senses. And so a sense knowledge, carnal person would have been there with... Elisha, and they would have counted the Syrians by 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, and then they look over and go, one, two. And they'd say, well, see, that's a lie. Well, it is a lie. If all you think is real is the physical world. But Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open up the young man's eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened up his eyes. I guarantee you this wasn't talking about his physical eyes. His physical eyes were as big as saucers looking out there. did isn't talking about he opened up his physical eyes. It's talking about the eyes of his heart. He started seeing by faith. And when he got into faith, he was able to see into the unseen realm, a real realm, reality, just unseen. And sure enough, there were more horses and chariots of fire around about them than there were any enemy soldiers. And because of it, Elisha lifted his hand, said, Lord, smite them all blind. He went down and told them to grab each other's hands. And he led the entire Syrian army captive to the king of Israel. And then he opened up their eyes and took the entire nation captive. You know what that is? That is the exact opposite of what happened to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created that they lived in that realm. To where they saw by faith. They could see spiritual things. They were living in the supernatural realm. And they were so dominated by it that they had never noticed the tree that was right in the midst of the garden. They had never noticed that the other one was naked. They were so God conscious. They never realized they were naked. Most of us, that's just totally off the charts. We can't even think that way. But imagine that you could get so God-conscious, you could get your mind so stayed on God and on spiritual things that you don't even realize whether or not you're clothed. Now, even if you get that spiritual, none of the rest of us are, so (laughs) please indulge us and wear your clothes. But I'm saying, Adam and Eve were so God-conscious that they didn't even notice things like whether or not you were clothed. Think about that. You know what? That's the way God made us to be. And yet we have de-evolved. I believe in evolution. De-evolution. We have evolved from these people that had six senses, who could walk by faith, who could perceive things beyond your five senses into people who now are totally controlled by it. And... If the Word of God says by his stripes you're healed, that when you pray, you receive, you know what that says, but your body says that you're hurting, so that just automatically trumps everything else. I can't help it. This is reality. This is what happened. I'm still hurting, so that means that God hasn't moved. Oh, is that so? If I had time, I could show you scriptures in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10 where the Lord gave a command. And send his power and yet for one time three minutes it took for God's power to manifest after he had moved. The next time three weeks. Not because God didn't move but because Satan was hindering this and fighting against it. But God had already released his power. It was a done deal. There are things that happen that can delay it. There's all kinds of things going on in the spiritual world that you can't see with your little eyes. And if you are a person that if you can't see it, taste it, hear it, smell it, or feel it, that means it hasn't happened, you're going to limit God. You're going to hold God back because you will abort your miracle while it's in the pipeline, while it's in the process of being done. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know what he's talking about? The same thing that Adam and Eve used to live in. He's saying we walk by faith. We are looking At things that can't be seen. That sounds like an oxymoron. If it can't be seen, then how can you look at it? Because you're looking with your heart. You're looking with faith. He's saying that this is the way Christians are. We look at the things that can't be seen. And then he begins to talk in the first few verses of chapter 5 about that if this physical body was to be destroyed, we have a, a body prepared for us in heaven. There's no physical proof of that. You can't prove that in any empirical, physical way. It's faith that caused him to believe that. And he's using this as an example. We live by faith. He he had a belief that he was going to have a glorified body. He had a belief that there was a heaven. There's no physical proof that there's a heaven. He was walking by faith. And he was just saying that this is the way it is. In the midst of saying all of these things, in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. That's normal Christianity. That's the way that we're supposed to be living is to walk by faith and not by sight. And yet most of us are so dominated and controlled by sight, hearing, feeling that we know what the Word says. We know God promised that if you ask, you receive. If you speak, the mountain is going to move. We know what the Word says, but I feel this. I saw this. I heard the doctor say this. And those things trump because most of us are more controlled by our five senses than we are by what the Word of God says. Most of us are walking by sight and not by faith. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the midst of a culture of unbelief. We are dominated by it and it's limiting God. And if you are going to see the limits taken off of God, you are going to have to change to where you walk by faith and not by sight he goes on to say in verse 16 he says wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh yea though we have known christ after the flesh yet now henceforth know we him no more that's just old english for saying that he was walking by faith and he didn't judge things based on what he was seeing based on what he was feeling he didn't know any man after the flesh you know, if the body of Christ had walked this way, it would totally eliminate prejudice. You wouldn't judge people on the color of their skin, or whether they're dressed fancy, whether they're clean, smell right, or look right. So much of our what we do is based on external, outward things. You know, we have a we have a couple that travels with us quite a bit. They aren't here this week, but they. Um, run the ambassadors to the nations and I've been going to their church for 20 years and they have a program where they give 100% of everything that comes in directly to these orphans and these children in their schools and stuff and it's just such a great program that I have them travel with us and they put up a booth and people support them and they build houses and they're just a great couple but they're from Charlotte, North Carolina and they look like they crawled out from under a rock (laughs) Derry is an Indian, a full blood Indian and he likes to wear his hair long and they never wear real nice clothes and you know what, I've had people judge them based on the external but after they get to know them there aren't two people on the face of the earth that love God more and they're giving their life they're just awesome, awesome, (laughs) awesome people But I've had people who love God, but they just make a snap decision based on the way they look and the way they present themselves. Paul says, I don't judge any man after the flesh. I don't know any man after the flesh. He saw people spirit to spirit. He used his spirit, his faith to perceive what that person was like on the inside. He didn't judge him based on the outside. He even goes on to say that we don't even know Christ after the flesh anymore. I knew him one time after the flesh, but I don't know him that way anymore. You know, the Apostle Paul probably saw Jesus when he was here on this physical earth. He wasn't a disciple of his at that time, but he was in Jerusalem, a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I'm sure that Jesus was the center of attention. I'm sure that Paul saw Jesus. He had seen Him. If you were to ask Paul, what did Jesus look like? He could have told you how tall He was, what color of eyes He had, how long His hair was or whatever. He could have given you a description of Jesus physically. But he says, at one time, I knew Him that way. Now, I don't know Him that way anymore. He knew Jesus by the Spirit not by physical, natural things. Do you know the person who wrote half of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, wasn't even his disciple when he was here on the earth? And he had a greater revelation of who Jesus was and of the grace of God than the disciples who literally walked and talked and could feel Jesus and see Him when He was here on this earth. How did he do that? You know, I haven't got time to say these things. I'm just, man, I'm going to have to say this quickly, but... Your senses are one of the biggest hindrances you have to walking with God. If you would have been a physical disciple of Jesus, it would have been hard, hard, hard to believe. And most people think it's just the opposite. I wished I could have been one of the disciples. If I'd have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, if I'd have seen him walk on the water, I'd have been a believer. It'd have been just the opposite. Because your senses would have been screaming at you. That he's human. He's natural. You know, we we get these romanticized pictures and stuff, but Jesus was dirty. He didn't have a built more to stay in and take a shower every day, and he didn't have shampoo and wash his hair. His hair got dirty and matted and messed up. He didn't have a suitcase that he carried with him everywhere. He didn't have a change of clothes. They would walk 20 miles a day in the hot Judean sun and he'd get sweaty and smelly and stink. And you know what? Here you are looking at a person. You can smell him. Jesus had to do all of the things that all of us do. He had to go to the bathroom. His disciples would see him do this and think, This is God. You know what? It would have been hard to believe on Him. (laughs) We have an advantage. It's much easier on us because we can close our eyes and take the Word of God and paint a picture of Him sitting at the Father's right hand in glory and in power. And it's easy for us to perceive Jesus. We have the record. We know the end of the story. The disciples struggled to believe in Jesus. Because the physical realm hindered them. And this is why most people struggle today. Because they're trying to contact God in some physical way instead of using their faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. You've got to relate to Him by faith. The Apostle John was so intimate with the Lord. He was the one that the scriptures, the scriptures that he wrote, he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Man, he had a great relationship with the Lord, and at the Last Supper, he was—you know—they didn't sit at a table and chairs the way that we do. They would recline on pillows, and so they had very low table. And he was reclining, and he put his head over on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper, and was leaning on him because they had such a great relationship. That same John saw Jesus in on the Isle of Patmos and wrote about it. In Revelation chapter 1, and he saw Jesus, and his hair was white, and his eyes were like fire, and his feet were like brass burning in a furnace, and the glory of God. And when he spoke, it was like the sound of Niagara Falls. And he saw all of this, and this same John who had his head over on the chest of Jesus now fell at his feet as if he was dead, and God had to raise him up. It's the same Jesus. There was no difference. The only difference was that now that body who had shielded and kept his true person and his glory from shining forth was removed and he saw him in the spiritual realm. That's what he's referring to. We used to know Jesus after the flesh. I could have told you how tall he was, what color of eyes he had, but man, we don't know him that way anymore. We know him by the Spirit. And most of us have just failed to know him by the Spirit. Do you realize that when Jesus rose from the dead, there's like ten, I forget the exact number, but somewhere around ten post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And in every single incident, the disciples who knew Jesus intimately, who had spent three and a half years with Him, didn't recognize Him. Not a single time did they recognize Him. Every time, they doubted that this was the risen Lord. Two of them even walked with him on the road to Emmaus for around two hours and talked to him. And they were talking about, haven't you heard that Jesus was raised from the dead? They were looking at him. They were talking to him. And they didn't realize that this was Jesus. And these are people who had lived with him for three and a half years and they didn't recognize him. The disciples went out and were fishing and they came and Jesus had made a fire and was cooking fish on the fire, and he was sitting there, and they were looking at him. Closer than from me to Wendell. They were just across the fire. They were looking at him face to face, and it says none of them dared ask who this was because they knew it was Jesus. They knew it by the Spirit, but in the natural, they couldn't recognize him. And he hadn't changed. He told them, he says, stick your finger into the print of the nails. Put your hand into my side, and don't be faithless, but believing. He was still the same. He still had the print of the nails, the scars. He had the same physical body. You know why they couldn't recognize him? Over in Mark chapter 16, describing this trip on the road to Emmaus, it says he appeared in another form unto them. That form was he was now spiritual and not physical. He was spiritual. That didn't mean that he looked different, but now it was spirit. And Jesus said in John chapter 3, he says, That which is spirit is spirit, that which is flesh is flesh. You can't discern the spiritual with physical means. You have to discern the spirit by the spirit. He was now in a glorified spiritual body that couldn't be, you could see it, but you couldn't recognize, you couldn't relate to Him just based on the flesh. You had to know Him by the Spirit. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have to discern spiritual things by your spirit. Man, I wish I had about five hours. I'm just now getting to a place where I can really say some things. But you know what? You can actually see better with your heart than you can with your physical eyes. But most of us don't live that way. Most of us think this is weird. This is normal. This is what Paul's saying. We walk by faith, not by sight. We look at things that aren't seen, not at things which are seen. We aren't moved by what we feel. If God says, I'm healed, who cares what I feel? Who cares what a doctor says? Who cares what your banker says? God said He'd supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Who cares about anything else? Some people think you can't live that way. Well, that's the way I'm living. I'm not perfect in it, but that's the way I'm living. You can get to a place to where walking by faith is more real than walking by sight. You know, I had this instance a number of years ago where we had a, what we call an Expand Your Vision weekend or a Bible college weekend, and we had people come from all over to visit the school. And we had a, an auditorium like this with a center aisle. I was sitting in a seat just exactly like this, and, and there were people over there, and there were two doors over here. And anyway, the power of God was just awesome. Jamie was leading praise and worship, and we were just worshiping God. And I had my eyes closed, and I was just standing there worshiping God. And with my eyes closed, this wasn't something I saw with my physical eyes, I saw in my heart. I saw Jesus just walk in those two doors over there. And he walked in and stood in front of those doors, and those doors were on these springs or these um, air bills. That after he walked in, they just slowly closed behind him and he just stood there. And in my heart, I was seeing all of this. And then I saw Jesus walk over and there was a woman from Chicago over here. And he just walked over and touched her. And I mean immediately, boom, she just fell on her face with spread eagle like this, worshiping God. He skipped two people and then he walked over and touched another woman. And when he did, he just touched her on the head. She fell to her knees and lifted her hands and started worshiping God. And I saw these things. I mean, it was real. I was seeing it in my heart. And it was so real what I was seeing that I opened up my physical eyes to see if I could see it. And I remember standing right there and I looked. And those two doors were just closed. Nobody was there. You couldn't see a person, but you could see those two doors. I could see everything in the physical that was happening, but I couldn't see Jesus. And I watched, and then pretty soon this girl from Chicago just fell flat on her face, spread eagle, out before the Lord. And then two people, nothing happened. Then the next person fell to their knees and lifted their hand. Everything I was seeing in the spirit I was seeing happen with my physical eyes except... There was a delay between what I saw in the spirit and what I saw in the natural. And I couldn't see Jesus. I could see the results of what Jesus was doing, but I couldn't see him. And you know what I did? I closed my eyes and went back to seeing with my heart because it was better. I could see better with my heart. I could see it in advance. And I saw the Lord go back and touch people. And you know, after that service, I went back and talked to them, and they said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I saw all of those things. Brothers and sisters, that's not abnormal. That's what what Paul's talking about. We walk by faith, not by sight. We see things that aren't seen. We aren't controlled and dominated by our sight, by our feeling, by what we hear. And I know that some of you are just saying, you can't live that way. It can't be done. It can be done. You can get to where knowing the Lord by the Spirit is greater than knowing Him in any physical, natural way. When I went and saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I was prepared for this awesome experience. I mean, I wanted an epiphany. I was expecting to just receive something awesome. And you know what? I'm not critical of Mel Gibson. I think he did as good with that movie as could be done. I'm not criticizing him. But I was disappointed with the movie. I was looking at the crucifixion scene. And I was thinking, Jesus, this isn't near as bad as what it really was. It was a letdown. It was disappointing. And I remember during that crucifixion scene praying and saying, God, why am I responding this way? And he told me, he says, you by the Spirit... Have taken the scriptures and meditated on those things thousands of hours, and you have seen things clearer than could ever be depicted in a movie. It's more real to you, it's more vivid when you see with your heart. He said that you, the crucifixion has had a greater impact on me than it had on the disciples that were physically present. And some of you think, well, that can't be. Yes, it can. When you start seeing and feeling by the Spirit, you can get to where that's more real to you than this physical, natural world. You can get to where when God says, by His stripes, you are healed, that is more real to you than what you see in the mirror, what you feel in your body, than what a doctor has to say, than what anything else. You can get to where the Word of God is more real to you. That's walking by faith. And brothers and sisters, if we don't get out of the culture of unbelief and start walking by faith, you're going to limit God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And most of us are just baptized in unbelief. How do you change that? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You're going to have to spend time in the Word of God. I had a number of people come to me this morning and ask for a prayer for something. And I told them, I said, that's not the kind of thing you can pray over. you got to renew your mind. you got to grow. you got to start learning the Word. There are so many of us that just want God to fix something so that we can go back to watching as the stomach turns on the television and continue our carnality and not interrupt our viewing schedule. It's going to take time. You're going to have to get into the Word of God. Something's going to have to become more important to you than listening to the bad news and doing all of the stuff that we do. There's just no shortcut to it. If you want to take the limits off of God, if you want to see the power of God, you're going to have to start operating in faith instead of fear, instead of unbelief. And it takes effort. But the good news is I believe God created every one of us, every one of us with this capacity for faith, a sixth sense and it may not have been functional. We may not have used it much, but you've got it. You already have the faith of the Son of God. It just needs to be released. It needs to be developed. You've already got it. You just need to use what you've got. It can be done. And I tell you, if you want to take the limits off God, this is going to, you're going to have to do this. Amen? Amen hey man, or oh me. And in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir because you're the people that flew hundreds, thousands of miles to come here. You're putting God first. And so you're in process. But I'm telling you that we've still got a long ways to go. We've got a long ways to go. We are just so controlled by our senses and we've got to get to where we're controlled by faith and not by our senses. And when you do that, it just opens up a whole new world to you. You see things differently. You think differently. You react differently than people who don't have faith. Things are different. It just makes a difference. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for faith. Why would anybody want to live just on a human plane to where what you feel controls you? I have people come to me all the time. Well, I'm depressed. I say, what's wrong? Well, nothing. I'm just depressed. They don't even have a reason for being depressed. I think we can overcome whatever happens in our life. So there's really not an excuse. But at least if something bad happened, you would have an excuse for it. There are some people that don't have any. I just feel bad. Well, pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. But I feel. Feeling has become like a God to a lot of people. Who cares how you feel? You know what? There's times that I don't feel like preaching, but I get up and do it. There's times I don't feel like praying for people, but I do it. There's times I don't feel like you're going to be healed, but I'll say you're healed in the name of Jesus. I don't let my feelings dominate me. What bondage? What bondage? Well, I don't feel good, so therefore I can't do something. How in the world do you survive? Man, I can't can't relate to people who let their feelings dominate. That's part of growing up. There's times you don't feel like going to work, but if you're an adult, you get up and go to work. You'd feel like sleeping in. But you know what? Part of being an adult is you go against your feelings and you do what you're supposed to do. There's times you like to just stay home and play. But if you're an adult, you get up and go to work and you take responsibility and you do things. Brothers and sisters, pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. And start going by what the Word says and quit empowering your feelings. Quit giving in to them and amplifying your feelings all of the time. Start walking by faith. That is a normal Christian life. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I love you and I thank you for these truths and I pray for people here that, Father, you've challenged them today and that we will turn from our unbelief and start walking in faith. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Father, I just thank you for the Holy Spirit and I believe that the Holy Spirit is taking the Word that has been shared, and that faith is coming. Father, I pray that people won't feel condemnation, but they won't be complacent. That Father, they'll change. They'll do what they've got to do to start walking by faith. That Father, we'll see things that aren't seen. That we'll know Jesus by the Spirit. We won't know any man after the flesh. We'll judge things based on the Spirit. We'll go by the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. I just call faith alive on the inside of people. I call this sixth sense of faith to the surface, to dominate, to operate on the inside of people. Thank you, Father. We receive that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, I just feel in my heart like that some of us in here, you just really need to repent. You've been doubting God, angry at God, upset with God, pleading with God, why don't you do something? And the truth is, God's been faithful, faithful, faithful. It's just our carnality. We're only looking with our eyes. We're only feeling with our feelings. We're only listening with our physical ears. We're missing what God has done. We've been walking with Him the whole road to Emmaus and didn't even know who it was that was with us. It's time to quit blaming God and it's time to just repent. Say, Father, I'm sorry. Teach me what I don't know. Help me to walk in faith. Praise the Lord. I believe there's some of you that this is going to be a major change, turning point in your life. You know, if you aren't born again... It's impossible for you to know the Lord. It's impossible for you to see by the